Father, we uh, come before you, and uh, God, we are just reminded that that is what it's all about, Father. It's all about Jesus, God. Uh, It's all about the fact that 2,000 years ago, you sent your son to this earth to uh, live for us, God, and then die for us, Father, so that we could uh, live beyond this life, God. And we thank you that in this season, we get the opportunity to uh, focus on Jesus a little bit more maybe than we do throughout the rest of the year, God. And God, we get to think and dwell on this incredible gift that you have given us in him, which is, uh, God, your salvation and a sign and testament to your love for us. And God, today as we open up your word and see a little bit more about the story about how you brought Jesus into this world, God. I pray, Father, that you would just illuminate your word. I pray that we would get a picture of just how amazing you are, how much you love us, and how powerful you are, God, to orchestrate all that you did, Father. And God, I pray that we would come away today uh, from your word with just a greater sense of awe at who you are and what you have done for us, Lord. And so, God, we just thank you for this opportunity that we get to hear from you, Lord. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen in the next 35 minutes, God. We would hear from you and you alone. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and have a seat. It's so good to see all of you. And as you grab a seat there, here's what I ask you to do. Grab your Bibles and let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Okay, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to find ourselves. We will pick it up in verse 18 in just a moment. Matthew chapter 1. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you know, one of the things that we always need to remember when we read our Bibles is that although we believe that the words of this book are truly supernatural words that have as their ultimate author God himself, just so you know, we believe that at this church, this is not an ordinary book. We believe that it is God who sits behind this particular book. Although we believe the words of this book are truly supernatural words that have as their ultimate author God himself, one of the things that we can never forget when we read our Bibles is that the people that the Bible talks about are real people who actually went through the circumstances of this book. The people that the Bible talks about are real people, just like you and me, who actually went through what this book describes. This is something I tried to drive home last week when we looked at the subject of Mary. You know, as I said last week, Mary has sort of grown in some uh, people's eyes to sort of outsized proportions. And there are people who pray to Mary, and there are people who even seem to worship Mary. And I really believe that if Mary were in front of us right now, I believe she would absolutely shun that. I do. Because as I tried to emphasize last week, who was Mary? Who was Mary? Well, when we first come across her in our Bibles, Mary is a 12 or 13 year old girl living in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. There was really nothing inherently special about Mary. She was an ordinary girl doing ordinary things until one day God reached into her life, turned it upside down, And set it on a completely different course than the one that she had planned for herself. And that, by the way, that is something that God has a habit of doing, not just in people in the Bible. But that's something that God has a habit of doing just in in life itself. God has this habit of reaching into people's lives and, and turning them upside down and setting them on a completely different course than they had planned for themselves. Uh, This is exactly what, what God did to me, actually. Uh, This past week, I got a little bit of an interesting email. Someone emailed me after my message last week to give me some encouragement. But it was what this person said at the beginning of this email that made me pause just for a second. 
Uh, this is what this person wrote. We'll put it on the screen. She wrote the following. She said, hi, Chris. Thank you for yesterday's message. It was what I needed to hear. She said, thank you so much for quitting your job as an investment banker with the potential to make millions of dollars and coming to teach at Friends Church. And obviously, it was that last statement there that got me. And I'll be honest with you. When I read that last statement there, my entire life flashed before my eyes. And I had this moment of panic where I thought, oh my goodness, what in the world have I done? I don't think I've ever quite seen it put that way before. But then I gathered myself, okay? Then I came to my senses. And in all seriousness, in all seriousness, you know, you never need to thank me for doing what it is that I am doing. And the reason why is because I just don't really believe I had a choice in the matter. Uh, It is what God called me to do. I'll never forget it. It was 18 years ago. It was the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college. And I was in a midweek college church service at uh, Bel Air Presbyterian Church. That's a church I went to uh, when I was in college. And in the middle of this worship service in that church service, God just did what he has a habit of doing. He reached into my life and he just turned it upside down. And in one very singular moment, God made it clear to me, Chris, I want you in the church. I want you in the church. And from that point forward, it did not matter what plans I had for myself. It didn't matter how much money was at stake. I don't think I quite realized that millions of dollars were at stake, but it didn't matter how much money was at stake. It didn't matter what anybody else wanted or expected of me. God had called me to do something, and I had to do it. And just so you know, brothers and sisters, it hasn't always been easy, okay? In fact, I think in many ways my life has probably been more difficult because of what God has called me to do. But it's also been more enriching, too. And I think in many ways that is the hallmark, that is the characteristic of a life of following God. It is more difficult at times, but it's also more enriching. At least that's what I have found. And I think it's for that reason that I so identify with the person that we're going to be focusing on today in our series in Advent here. And he is introduced for us in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Take a look with me there. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Let me read that again. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And we see in that verse the person that we're going to focus on today. And today we are going to focus on the person of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the person of Joseph. And Joseph, as we see, is introduced for us here in verse 18. But actually, before we unpack what happens here in verse 18, we have to do a significant amount of background work. And the reason for that is because I really feel a burden this weekend to clear up what I think are a lot of misconceptions that exist about the person of Joseph in our Bible. You know, the story that we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 18 here, it is probably one of the three or four most famous stories that we tell at this time of year, just like the story of Mary that we looked at last year. But even though the story of Joseph is one of the three or four most famous stories that we tell at this time of year, one of the things that I have found is that in Christian circles, Joseph is far less celebrated, and he is far less revered than his wife, than Mary. In fact, it's sort of been my impression that in a lot of Christians' minds, Joseph is almost sort of an afterthought to the Christmas story. That he's kind of really only there because of Mary. And you could, you could take Joseph out of the Christmas story. In fact, you could take Joseph out of the Bible. You could take him out of the life of Jesus. And it probably wouldn't make all that much of a difference. 
Well, just so you know, nothing could be further from the truth. And that is what I want to show you here today. You know, have you ever wondered, brothers and sisters, have you ever wondered why God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus? Have you ever wondered why of all the 12 or 13-year-old girls that were living in Israel at the time these events that take place, maybe even that were living in Nazareth, have you ever wondered why Mary was the one who was selected by God to bring Jesus into this world? Well, the answer that the Bible gives us is that at least part of the reason for that was because of Joseph. Part of the reason why God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus is because of her relationship with Joseph, is because she was engaged to Joseph. Now, how can I say that? Well, let me explain. If you were with us last week, you know, last week we looked at a couple of verses in the book of Isaiah. And we saw how 750 years before Jesus came to this earth, God promises people that one day he would send his son. He would send uh, this figure known as the Messiah, the anointed one, to this earth. And this son would go on to rule and to reign over Israel. And it's through that that God would bring salvation and God would bring deliverance to his people. Well, there was a really interesting phrase in one of those verses we looked at last week that I really just skipped over. But I want to come back to today because it's very important. And so we're going to put this on the screen. This is Isaiah 9-7. 750 years before Jesus came to this earth, listen to what God said about his son. He said, My son will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. God says, My son is going to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. And you see that phrase there, David's throne? That's a really important phrase. And that actually picks up on something that we find all throughout the Old Testament. You know, several times in the Old Testament, not just in the book of Isaiah, but several times in the Old Testament, God talks about this Messiah that his son, he is going to send into the world. And if you look at those places where God talks about that, in the vast majority of them, God gives us a detail about the Messiah. And what God gives us is he tells us that when this Messiah comes into the world, he is going to be in the line of David. He's going to be in the family of King David. And that's what we see it alluded to in this book of Isaiah. That one of the ways that we know that the Messiah is really the Messiah, is God's son, is you're going to be able to trace his lineage back to King David himself. That, by the way, is why the book of Matthew begins the way that it does. If you go back to the very beginning of the book of Matthew, you will see that the book of Matthew begins, quite honestly, kind of the most boring way of any book in the Bible. And the reason why is it begins with this really long genealogy. It begins with this family tree. For about 16 or 17 verses, Matthew just repeats the same phrase over and over and over again. And that is that so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. And almost it can almost sort of lull you to sleep. I mean, honestly, it's not the most stimulating reading. But there's a reason why Matthew begins his gospel that way. And you see it in verse 1. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Look at how Matthew begins this entire biography of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew writes this. He says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of, and what's that next name there? David, the son of Abraham. This is the genealogy. In other words, this is the family tree of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. And that's the reason why Matthew begins with this genealogy, this family tree. You see, Matthew knows that according to the Old Testament, 
if Jesus is truly God's son, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, then you need to be able to trace Jesus' lineage back to King David. And so what Matthew does in the first 17 verses here is he gives us this family tree of Jesus to show how Jesus indeed is a direct descendant of King David. In fact, Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham himself. But Matthew gives us this family tree to show how in Jesus God fulfilled his promise to have Jesus be in the line of David. But here's where it gets a little bit interesting, okay? If you look at this family tree that Matthew gives us, you will see that Abraham is mentioned in verse 2, you'll see that David is mentioned in verse 6, and you'll see that Jesus is mentioned at the very end, at the very end of verse 16. But here's where it gets interesting. Do you know who, according to Matthew, it is in Jesus' immediate family who provides the link from Jesus to David? Do you know who it is in Jesus' immediate family that provides the link from Jesus to David? Well, we find that in verse 16. Look with me in verse 16. It says this. It says, and Jacob was the father of, and what's that next name there? Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. It says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph. Do you see what's going on there? You see, according to Matthew, it is not Jesus' mom. It is not Mary who provides Jesus the link to King David. It is Joseph who provides Jesus the link to King David. We actually are not sure of Mary's ancestors. Now, some people do believe that Mary herself was a descendant of David based on something that we find in the book of Luke, but there's enough question marks about that that I don't really believe that. And you can ask me about that afterwards if you want or send me an email. But what we know for certain is that it is Joseph who is in the line of David. It is Joseph who is a direct descendant of David. And that is part of the reason why God had Mary be the mother of Jesus. You see, God selected Mary to be the mother of Jesus because she was engaged to royal blood. Because she was engaged to a descendant of David. But here's where we run into a little bit of a problem. And maybe some of you already know what that problem is. Uh, Brothers and sisters, who is the biological father of Jesus? Who is the biological father of Jesus? Is, is, Is Joseph the biological father of Jesus? No, who's the biological father of Jesus? Let's go ahead and put that slide on the screen. Here's a simplified family tree of Jesus as Matthew gives it to us. I'm on the left-hand side. Abraham is mentioned in verse 2. David is mentioned in verse 6. He's a descendant of Abraham. Joseph is mentioned in verse 16. He's a descendant of David. Joseph is married to Mary. Mary is the mother of Jesus. But as you see from that slide, who is it that is actually the biological father of Jesus? It's God. God is the biological father of Jesus. In fact, when you actually think about it, Joseph doesn't really have any relationship with Jesus. Joseph doesn't really have any connection to Jesus. So what does that mean? Does that mean our God messed up? Does that mean our God made a mistake? Does that mean that God should have had Mary be the one who is the descendant of David, but the fact that God chose Joseph to be the descendant of David means that Jesus isn't really in the line of David, and therefore God has made one big mistake? What do you think? Does our God make mistakes? That was not very convincing. Let's try that again, okay? Does our God make mistakes? No, No, God has a plan. He always has a plan. So what is God's plan? 
Well, you see, even though Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, there is a way that Jesus can end up in David's line, through David, in David's family tree. And you know what that way is. It's adoption. It's adoption. You see, if Joseph ends up adopting Jesus as his son and becomes Jesus' legal earthly father, then according to Old Testament law, which, by the way, God himself wrote, then according to Old Testament law, Jesus would receive all the benefits of his earthly father, including the royal bloodline, including David as his ancestor. If Joseph adopts Jesus as his legal earthly son, then according to Jewish law, which God himself was in charge of, then Jesus would receive all the benefits of his uh, adopted father, including the royal bloodline, including David as his ancestor. And so in order for God's plan to be fulfilled, all he has to do is to get Joseph to adopt Jesus as his son. But this is where God has created a challenge for himself. And that's what leads us back to verse 18 and to the start of our story here today. As our story begins today, let me set the stage for you, okay? Let me set the scene for you. It is now four months after the events we looked at last week. It is four months after Mary has become pregnant with Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, those of you who are paying attention, and I know that's a tall order right now, but those of you who are paying attention may say, well, Chris, where do you get four months from? I don't see anywhere in Matthew where it says four months, and you're right. I don't get it from Matthew. I actually get it from the book of Luke. Right after the passage we looked at last week, we are told that after Mary gets pregnant with the Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit, she actually leaves Nazareth, and she travels to her cousin Elizabeth's house in a different town. And Elizabeth, by the way, was the mother of John the Baptist. And we're told in Luke chapter 1, verse 56, that Mary spends three months living with her cousin Elizabeth. So when you take that fact and you factor in some travel time, the impression that we get here in verse 18 is that God has Mary returned to Nazareth right as she is four months pregnant after she has not been seen for four months. Okay, God has Mary returned to Nazareth, which means she has, he has Mary returned to Joseph. He has Mary returned to her fiancé right as she is four months pregnant. Now, before we go any further, think about that just for a second. What do you know about women when they are four months pregnant? What do you know about a woman's anatomy when she is four months pregnant? Ah, yes, that's right about the time that you can no longer hide anymore that you're pregnant. That's right about the time that it becomes obvious what has happened to you. So here Mary has been gone for four months, completely off the face of the planet in terms of anybody in Nazareth, okay? And God has Mary return back to Nazareth right at the time that it becomes impossible to hide what has happened to her. Don't you love the way God works, brothers and sisters? Don't you way, love the way that God works? Let me tell you something about our God. And I touched upon this last week, but it bears repeating. Our God has a flair for the dramatic, okay? He does. Our God, at times, he loves to do things the hard way. Seldom does he do things the easy way. He loves to do things the hard way. And there is a reason for that. It's because that's what gives God an opportunity to show off. That's what gives God an opportunity to show how powerful he is. And that is what we see in this story. You see, the story that we're looking at today, this famous story of Joseph, 
It is given to us in our Bible for one primary reason. And the primary reason why God gives us the story of Joseph is to show us how God got Joseph to adopt Jesus as his son so that Jesus can be in David's royal line just as God promised. That's the main reason that we are given this story. But you see, in order for God to get Joseph to adopt Jesus as his son, God has to get Joseph to tie the knot with Mary. God has to get Joseph to decide to go through with his marriage with Mary. But do you see how all of a sudden that has become a challenge? Mary is now four months pregnant, and Joseph knows it's not him. He doesn't know what we know at this point. He just knows it's not him. All Joseph sees is his 12 or 13-year-old fiance come back home four months pregnant after conveniently having been gone for four months. And you can imagine what is probably going through his mind. And so if God is going to get Joseph to adopt Jesus as his son, then God has to somehow convince Joseph that Mary didn't get pregnant the way that literally everybody else in the world gets pregnant. And that Mary didn't cheat on Joseph. And that God is indeed the father of this baby. That's the only way that God is going to succeed in his plan. And I was thinking about that this past week, and I was thinking, you know, if God wanted to make this really easy, how could he have gotten Joseph to be convinced of what happened to Mary? Well, what if God had Joseph in on that initial meeting with Gabriel, right, that we looked at last week? I mean, if Joseph were there from the beginning, it would have been so easy to convince Joseph of what had happened. But God didn't choose the easy way in Joseph's life. And by the way, seldom does God choose the easy way in our life either. You know, I love it when one of you come up to me after a service and you ask me for prayer. And as I ask what I can pray for you about, you uh, unfold what's going on in your life. And it's clear you're, you're in a really tough spot. And it's clear that you're going through what I call one of those impossible situations. And I love that. And understand, I don't love it because I love seeing you go through an impossible situation. No, I love it. Because I know that's right where God does his best work. And I know, therefore, it's right about the time, and I've seen it more times than I can count, it's right about the time when God is going to show up and do something pretty dramatic in your life. And that's exactly what we see in this story. So here God has Mary return back to Nazareth right as it's obvious that something has happened to her. And not only to Joseph is it obvious, it's probably obvious to the entire town, right? Remember, Nazareth is a pretty small town. And so that's what leads Joseph to do what he does in verse 19. Look with me there. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And so here we see in verse 19 that Joseph decides to divorce Mary. And obviously, there are a couple of details that happen between verses 18 and 19 that we aren't told and that we have to speculate on. But I think it's probably safe to say, even though we aren't told this, I think it's probably safe to say that when Mary returned to Nazareth, the first thing that she did is she probably tried to convince Joseph of her story. And she said, Joseph, you know, I know it seems unbelievable, but you have to believe me. I didn't cheat on you. Um, the, the, the angel Gabriel visited me, God's glory descended upon me, and, and the Holy Spirit is the one who made me pregnant, and God is the father of the baby growing inside of me. And she probably tried her hardest to convince Joseph of what was going on. But as we see from verse 19 here, Joseph just doesn't believe Mary. And so he decides to go through with divorce proceedings. 
And this goes back to something I talked about last week. Understand at this point in the story, Joseph and Mary are not married yet. They're engaged to be married. They're in the first century equivalent of engagement known as betrothal. But as I said last week, there are some very significant differences between how betrothal worked in the first century and engagement works today. We talked about one of those last week. That's the average age at which people got betrothed. You see two more differences in this story. One, in verse 19, you see that Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband. And that is indeed how engaged betrothed couples called each other in the first century. They referred to each other as husband and wife. There was no fiancé. That's a French word anyway. There was no fiancé. You called each other husband and wife. And then the other significant difference is the only way out of betrothal in the first century, the only way out of engagement in the first century, was through formal divorce proceedings. Okay, Betrothal was much more serious in the first century than engagement is today. And so we see here that that's what Joseph decides to do. And just so you know, Joseph really had no choice. Uh, the punishment for adultery in the Old Testament was, uh, was divorce. And it's very clear that that's what Mary has done. Mary has committed adultery. And so Joseph has to divorce her. And you know what that means, don't you? If Joseph carries through with this divorce, what does that mean? That means that God's whole plan is in jeopardy. Because if Joseph doesn't marry Mary, then he won't adopt Jesus as his son. And if Joseph doesn't adopt Jesus as his son, that means Jesus will not be in the line of David. And if Jesus is not in the line of David, that means that he can't be the Messiah. And that means that God cannot fulfill his promises. And so if Joseph carries through with his plan, God cannot carry through with his plans. What does this sound like? Does it sound like an impossible situation? Well, it is. And what does that mean? That's mean that, that means that's where God does his best work. So let's Scott see God go to work. Pick it up in verse 20. It says, But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David. Now you see how Joseph is called there the son of David? The emphasis again is that Joseph is in David's line. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God's with, God is with us. And by the way, that's a quote of Isaiah 7:14 that we looked at last week. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. And so what do we see God do there? We see God go to work. We see God intervene. Right after Joseph decides that he's going to divorce Mary, he goes to bed. And God sends Joseph an angel in the middle of the night. And this angel does three things for Joseph. First of all, the angel convinces Joseph that Mary's story is true. Mary, I know, or Joseph, I know it seems unbelievable, but she is the virgin that was talked about in Isaiah 7.14. Everything she said is true. She did not commit adultery. That's the first thing. Second thing the angel does. The angel convinces Joseph to not carry through with this divorce. He convinces Joseph to, to tie the knot with Mary. But it's the third thing that the angel does that is the most significant. And that is that the angel gives Joseph an assignment. The angel gives Joseph a task. And you see that in verse 21. Look at what it says there. The angel says, she, meaning Mary, will give birth to a son. And I want you to underline this next phrase. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Mary's going to give birth to a son, the angel says. But you are to give him the name Jesus. So what's the assignment that the angel gives Joseph? The angel says, you are to bestow upon Jesus his name. Now, do you know why that's significant? 
Well, the reason why it's significant is because in the Jewish culture at this time, it is only a father that would give a name to his son. It was only a father who would bestow upon his, name, his son a name. And so when the angel, or really God, gives Joseph this assignment to name Jesus in verse 21, and when Joseph carries through with it at the end of verse 25, as Joseph names Jesus, do you know what Joseph has done by that? Joseph has adopted Jesus as his son. Joseph has adopted Jesus as his earthly son, which means that Joseph has become Jesus' earthly father, which means Jesus is in the line of David just as God promised. As I said earlier, Joseph is not an afterthought to the Christmas story. In many ways, he's at the very center of it. God uses Joseph just like God used Mary to bring about his good purposes. And that is why I love this story so much. And I sort of get the sense here today that you all don't love it as much as I do. But I love this story so much because what we see in this story is we see the creativity of our God. We see the way that God weaves together all these different things to carry about his purposes. One of the best analogies I've ever heard for God is that God is this master orchestra conductor. And he has this ability to just bring together all these instruments, all these different pieces to create this beautiful symphony. And that is exactly what we see in this particular passage. That's why I think we learn so many things from this story. One of the lessons that we learn from the story is what we looked at last week and the way that God accomplishes his purposes, the mysterious way that God goes about accomplishing his purposes. Another thing that we learn is we see in Joseph a model for our faith, an example for our faith, someone who just always does what God wants him to do, just like Mary we saw last week. But as I was studying this passage this past week, there was one word especially that came to my mind. And not surprisingly, it is the, the theme of Advent this week, and that is the word peace. And I see peace a couple of very significant ways in this passage. If we had time, I'd, I'd go into greater detail in verse 19, where Joseph decides that he's going to divorce Mary. But you, you need to look at how he goes about it. He, he's going to do it in private, and he's going to treat Mary with gentleness and respect. And, and even despite the fact that he, think, he thinks he's wronged, he's, he's trying to be kind to Mary. And there's an incredible lesson in that. But for the sake of time, I want to focus on the most significant area I see peace in this story. And that is the way that God gives us peace through his son Jesus. It's the peace that God gives us through his son Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I, I had a conversation where someone said something to me that, that made me really sad. I was in a conversation with this woman who um, has, has grown up in the church. She attends our church from time to time. And she's someone who I just know loves God, loves the Lord. And in the course of this conversation, we were talking about my job as a pastor. And we were talking about God's word and that sort of thing. And in the middle of this conversation, this woman said this. She said, Chris, you know, I just hope at the end of the day that God loves me. She said, I just hope at the end of the day that God loves me. And that, that statement made me sad. Because here is a woman who has grown up in the church. Here is a woman who has been to countless Christmas services and Easter services and everything in between. But I really feel like me and my profession, we failed her in some way. Because despite all of the Christmas, all the services that she has attended, all the Bible studies that she has attended, somehow she's missed the main point of all of this. Somehow she's missed the whole main point of the Christian faith. And that is the fact that God loves us. It's the fact that God loves us. And as I probed a little bit further, I found out why she doubted God's love. 
You see, this woman has made some mistakes in her life. And so she wonders how God can love her because of the mistakes that she has made. And I definitely get that, because I think that's a fear all of us have from time to time. You know, we all know ourselves better than anybody else, which means that we know our sins better than anybody else, including those secret ones that we never let anybody else on, that, that, that's just between us and ourselves, but we know that we can't hide them from God. And I know that sometimes we probably sit with ourselves and we go, gosh, I, I don't even really like myself. How can God like me? How can God love me? Well, to that, I direct your attention again to verse 21, where we see this name that God takes on for himself as he sends his son Jesus into the world. It says this, it says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And we see here that it is really God, ultimately, who chose the name for his son when he came into this world. And the name that God chose is the name Jesus. And do you know what the name Jesus means, literally? The name Jesus comes from two Hebrew words that literally mean the Lord saves. It means the Lord saves, God saves. Now why, of all the names that God could have chosen, why did he choose that name? to take upon himself as he sent his son Jesus into the world. What exactly does Jesus, what exactly does God save us from in Jesus? Well, you see it at the end of verse 21. It says, because he will save his people from their sins. And that's why Jesus came into this world. And that's why we have Christmas. You know, God didn't give us Christmas so that we could have warm and fuzzy feelings at the end of the year. God didn't give us Christmas so that we could put up beautiful decorations and give one another presents at the end of the year. No, there, there is one reason why God, God gave us Christmas. There is one reason why God sent his son into this world. It's to remove the barrier of sin that separates us and God. Because of our sin, we have not been at peace with God. And God doesn't want that. He wants us to be at peace with him, and God wants to be at peace with us. And so he sent his son into this world in order to remove the sword of sin that separates us and God. And you need to hear that. If you have put your faith in Jesus, there is nothing, there is nothing that comes between you and God because God has saved you from your sin. God has removed that sin from you. And why did God do that? The testimony of Scripture on this is unmistakable. It's because God loves us. He really loves us. This past week, I was remembering the famous story of, of Karl Barth. I don't know if you know the name Karl Barth. He was one of the foremost theologians of the previous century, lived in the middle of the, the 20th century. And sort of Karl Barth's magnum opus is he wrote this 13-volume work called The Church Dogmatics. And it's just this work full of theology, theology of the Bible, theology of God, theology of Jesus. It's just this massive work. And the story goes that after he wrote this, he was sitting in his office for an interview with someone. And the interviewer looked at the, the books behind him on his shelf and, and the church dogmatics that he wrote. And, and the interviewer asked Karl Barth the following question. He said, Dr. Barth, if you could summarize all that you wrote in a few words, he said, how would you summarize it? And here, one of the greatest theologians that lived in the past, you know, 200 years, one of the foremost thinkers of his time, this is what he said. He said, oh, I, I'd summarize that this way. 
Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what this is all about. And no matter what else you hear from anybody who ever stands on this stage, you need to hear that. You need to hear how much God loves us. And that's why as we close here today, just like we did last week, I wanted to see if we can get even a taste of God's love here today. An experience of God's love through his Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so here's what I ask you to do. Would you do me a favor? Would you just bow your heads with me right now? And I'm just going to guide you just through a little time of prayer here. And the first thing I want you to do with your heads bowed is um, I want you to do something that I know may make some of you uncomfortable. But right now, I, I want you to confess your sins to God. We've all come into this place knowing that in the past 24 hours, the past week, the past month, maybe we have we've done things that go against God's word and that he wouldn't want us to do. We haven't loved God. We haven't loved our neighbor in the way that the Bible tells us to. And I know it's scary sometimes to, to bring those before God because it sort of makes it real. And, and it makes us more aware of the fact that, yeah, we have messed up. But here's the deal. While our own conscience may, conscience may condemn us for those sins, the Bible tells us that God doesn't. He forgives us for them. He's removed them from us. He saves us from our sins. And I will be honest with you, some of the best times I've ever had with God have followed a time of confession. Because it's then that I experience and I know and I feel the forgiveness of God over me. So I, I want to give you a moment here. Would you, just, would you just confess your sins before God right now? And I'll give you a moment to do that. God, as we confess our sins to you right now, Lord, I thank you for the truth of 1 John. That you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, Lord. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. And now here's the next thing I want you to do, okay? Paul prays this great prayer in Ephesians 3 where he says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And in your own words right now, I want you to pray some sort of variation of this prayer and that is this, God, I know that you love me. Help me know that you love me. God, I know that you love me. Help me really know, help me really believe now that you love me. And I want you to say your own version of that and um, see how God meets you in that.
Father, this side of heaven, um, we will never be able to comprehend fully just how much you love us, Lord. But we know, God, um, that you do give us tastes of that. You do give us glimpses of that from time to time, Father. And I pray right now for those who especially need that here in this place, God, I, I pray that you would be giving them right now just a glimpse of how much you love them, Father. And I, God, I, I pray that we would understand that because of your son, Jesus, that there is nothing that can separate us from your love. God, I pray for those people right now who maybe over the last several days or weeks or months have been struggling with just a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and a lot of doubt. God, and I pray that you would help them know that that anxiety and that fear and that doubt does not get in the way of you and them. You forgive them for that, God. And you love them. God, I pray for those right now who have been struggling with anger, unjust, unrighteous anger, maybe towards the events that are going on around us, maybe towards certain people that we come across at work, maybe even towards people at, at home, Father. And God, I pray that you would let those people know that their anger does not get in the way of your love for them. You know about it, but God, you forgive it. And Father, you love them. And Father, I pray for those right now who are struggling maybe with self-control in some area. I, I pray for those who are struggling with an addiction to alcohol, God. I pray for those who are struggling with an addiction to prescription drugs, God. I pray for those who are struggling with an addiction to lust and pornography, God. And Father, I pray that you would let those people know, Father, that that does not get in the way of your love for them. You know about it, Father. They have put their, their faith in your son, Jesus, God. You forgive it. And God, you love them so much, God. You love us all so much. Would you help us to really realize that, God? And Father, I think of the verse in 1 John that tells us that perfect love casts out fear, Lord. And so, God, I pray that with an awareness of your love, we would live in this world today, not in the fear that so many people have, God, but just an awareness that you are a heavenly Father who adores us, who loves us, God, and you are with us every single step of the way, God. And Father, especially in this season, Lord, would we strive to share that love to others. And so, God, as we close with this final song here, Lord, I pray that we would sing. I pray that we would praise you just from hearts of gratitude, overwhelmed with all that you are and all that you do for us, God. And I pray that this would just be an offering of praise back to you, Father. We love you, God. We thank you. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.